0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the IIF's All About the Green, where we discuss the latest and greatest with some of the most interesting people working in sustainable finance today. I'm Sonia Gibbs, Managing Director, Head of Sustainable Finance for the IIF. And with me today, I am delighted to have Zoe Knight, who is Group Head of the Centre for Sustainable Finance for HSBC. Zoe, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Sonia. It's a real delight to be here this afternoon. Wonderful. It would be really interesting, I think, for folks to understand a little bit more about how you first got involved in climate finance and maybe a little on how your role has evolved over the years. It's really changing for all of us, isn't it?
1: Well, it certainly is. And I think when I started my career back in the years of 97, I never really thought that there would be a climate job to get stuck in with. So it's been certainly an exciting journey. I mean, I'm really an economist at heart. So I like the way that the climate landscape has now evolved from being thinking about the risks and opportunities relating to climate to looking more at how to align financial flows with emissions outcomes. And that means looking at all sectors and thinking across the economy as a whole. What I really notice is that the landscape has shifted so that Institutional investors were really the pioneers in thinking about climate issues as they were wrapped into an ESG framework. But over the last 18 months, two years or so, the banks have really stepped up in the speed at which they're looking at the issues as well. So, in the role at HSBC, I I sit across the bank, and the centre is really a think tank about how these issues are going to play out in terms of energy system transformation and the growth of the sustainable finance market and that's really exciting but what's even more exciting is I'm about to transition into a role leaving London and moving to Dubai to work in the Middle East on financed emissions and look at what energy transition looks like and net zero goals look like for the region as a whole for HSBC.
0: Now, I think that's fascinating. It does raise a, a couple of really interesting questions about both your role and how HSBC approaches sustainability. First of all, I wanted to go back to something you had said about how financial flows affect emissions outcomes. And that's a, a very interesting equation. I wonder if you can elaborate on how you see that. How should we be looking at financial flows in this context? Well,
1: this is a really crucial conversation that we're having right now. So. For HSBC in particular, the transition to net zero is at the heart of group strategy. And that means influencing decision-making at every level of our organization. And one of the ways that this is evolving is moving the thinking from having an operational approach to emissions, i.e. looking at scope one, to really capturing scope one, two and three of emissions related to the group as a whole. And what that means is we're accounting for emissions in our supply chain of the goods and services that we use. But what we're talking about here is looking at the emissions associated with financing activities. And this alignment is really about that. It's about looking at the emissions curves that need to be achieved in order to deliver our limit to temperature rises, so below one and a half degrees, and figuring out what sort of transformation is going to take place in the sectors comprising the real economy to deliver that downward emissions curve. And of course, in many different countries, this is going to play out differently some emissions are going to go up before they go down, whereas for other countries, we're already on a downward emissions curve for the economy as a whole. And so for finance, it's about saying, how do we determine what sort of measurements we want to look at for the clients that we serve and how do we account for their emissions? How do we choose the future scenarios of emissions curves that we can set targets against in order to monitor how well our finance is achieving emissions reductions and how well do we engage with our clients to understand what they're doing so that we can really support them on that journey by providing the financing needs that they're going to require to actually facilitate this shift themselves right it's not going to come from nowhere they're going to have to invest to transition their business model.
0: So it's a massive undertaking. It's interesting what you said about how you work with your different kinds of clients and in some places and maybe for some kinds of clients, emissions are going to go up before they go down. And I wanted to focus in on two maybe subsets of your clients because you operate, of course, worldwide and globally. One being kind of small and medium-sized enterprises who have a, a whole different set of issues to big global firms. The other being emerging markets, where they tend to have different growth models, maybe more reliance on fossil fuels. So how do you see this kind of bending the curve and emissions reduction playing out for sectors like these?
1: These are really interesting issues that we'll need to get our arms around as an industry to really facilitate change. Now, for the SMEs, in many cases, they might not have thought as hard about sustainability factors, as larger corporates. So they may not be disclosing or have a starting point of calculation for their emissions. So there's a role for banks and others to help on that disclosure piece of the emissions that they're responsible for. And there are several drivers that are encouraging them to do that. One, if they're part of the supply chain for a larger corporate, where the large corporate is on the receiving end of engagement from shareholders who also want to see the supply chain having emission reductions associated with it. So the SMEs are kind of the next in that chain of discussion. From other perspectives, they're dealing with their own customer base in terms of consumers or government stakeholders and and wanting to have a sustainability approach that really resonates with the broader society that they're working in. So it's important for SMEs to start looking at how many emissions they're responsible for. The other end of the scale in terms of emerging markets, they equally have a disclosure issue to worry about because shareholders and governments themselves are asking for that information but they also have a very different backdrop in terms of ability and capacity to pay for the transition right now right because even though the cost of renewables has come down sharply over many years actually in some locations there might be regulatory hurdles that prevents the uptake of renewables or there might be other barriers like the volume of people that are employed by an industry that is high climate impact. And so on that basis, we really need to enable a just transition where people are brought along. There's thinking around the compensation mechanism, when we need to transition away from fossil fuels into low carbon sectors. And the financial system is doing a lot of thinking around the vehicles that we can use to accelerate investment for a just transition. So that may well mean bringing forward the end of life date for fossil fuel facilities in certain countries and thinking through how we can help make sure that guardrails around that type of thinking have scientific integrity and actually are about facilitating emission reduction and aren't just about prolonging the life of an activity that is going to be harmful to the planet.
0: That touches on another sector that's very much in the public eye. You've spoken about the concerns for small business. You've spoken about some of the big picture issues for emerging markets. But of course, these sort of what you call high emissions sectors are hard to abate sectors. Oil and gas, energy, and so on. Some of these considerations have got to be the same, right? They all have stakeholders. They all have pressure on them from various sides to reduce emissions and so on. You've just come, I think, from a very interesting conference in Houston for the oil and gas industry. What are your thoughts here on on these hard-to-abate sectors? Yes.
1: Well, you're right, Sonia. I have been in the heart of Houston listening to many oil and gas power companies talking about how they're going to approach the future, of course, being incredibly mindful of the tragic events occurring through Russia and Ukraine and being mindful of that. But nonetheless they are still thinking about what their climate transition looks like hard to abate sectors are a particularly interesting topic because you need the materials that they are producing to provide climate solutions you know still goes into wind turbines. We need to find a way that decarbonizes those industries in a way that is going to provide us with the materials that we need to respond to population growth economic growth et etc et etc but what they 're doing is actually pretty innovative because they're partnering with their supply chain or their customers, depending on which end of the curve you're looking at, and thinking, okay, how do we de-risk this for both of us? How do we create the business case that says, we know that we need to reduce emissions. We know that in doing so, it's probably going to be a little bit more expensive in the short term than it will be in the long term. But we know that we need to get to scale so that it does make the whole thing cheaper and have a knock-on effect in other markets. And one of the themes that really resonated through the conference as a whole was this notion of innovative collaboration, innovative partnerships, so that the demand for the the climate solution is there in the first place before needing to put up a lot of capital that may or may not end in the, the result of a market that you really, really need. So we've got this really strong interplay of acknowledgement between all companies and government that they need to accelerate unblocking these institutional barriers, which might come from regulation or pricing, and really try and create this low-carbon ecosystem that is addressing the climate problem and will ultimately be cheaper and stronger for all of us.
0: And of course, you know, as you mentioned earlier in some countries and localities, that conversation between governments and and the companies that operate in their jurisdiction is going to be different, right? In some places, particularly in Europe and the UK, maybe that's going a little faster than in some other places.
1: So for sure, there are catalysts that feed things up in a different way between markets. So for instance, in Europe and the UK, there's been a very long history in regulatory prods that have shifted the energy system. So whether that's targets for renewable capacity as part of the mix, there's been targets on energy efficiency, the introduction of EU emissions trading scheme to really shift the economics of the sectors have been all useful tools which ultimately have bent emissions curves downwards. In some other regions, it's actually the financial system response and the regulator response from the central bank side that is is making the financial system look more closely at how risks might play out in the context of stress testing for capital and liquidity. That's particularly important because we know that the climate problem hasn't been solved fast enough, even though we've known it exists for a long time now. And therefore, the different nudges that are coming need to come from all fronts because we need to speed up how people act in response to this massive challenge that we're facing now in particular from the central bank perspective we've got the network for greening the financial system which has brought together a coalition of the willing as it were to think about common ground on stress testing for climate and and what sort of scenarios we should think about and how we can develop a toolkit that enables banks to do that and regulatory requirements and it's been really helpful at generating a conversation and also servicing what the practical approach to operationalize these concepts is. Because if I think back kind of five years or so when we set up the Centre of Sustainable Finance, the idea was that we wanted to look at the theory of how the carbon budget was going to play out in energy systems. And that meant a lot of partnering with the likes of the Energy Transition Commission and looking at modelling and thinking about what the IEA was telling us and just really working through the theory. Whereas fast forward to now and it's much more about the practical implementation and speeding up the operationalisation of this thinking. That's a massive shift because it's what we need in terms of the practical outcomes. It's getting emissions down. So that central bank thinking And the industry thinking is really kind of coming together in a way now that should help us speed up our response.
0: Well, you've mentioned ecosystem, and that's a really interesting way to look at it, right? Because this is a field where there are a lot of voices and stakeholders, right? And I'm interested in how HSBC and how you yourself approach this, because we have organizations like the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, GFANS the Prince of Wales Sustainable Markets Initiative, which you're involved in, lots of voluntary frameworks, you might say. Climate Action 100 Plus, you know, the Net Zero Banking Alliance, all of these. At the same time, you have regulators and standard setters, as you noted, looking much more closely at scenario analysis, stress testing, and so on. You have policymakers looking at climate policy, carbon pricing, all these kinds of levers. So, how do you at HSBC approach this whole? Ecosystem and and trying to get your views across. This, Sonia,
1: is certainly one of the trickiest things we have to navigate because we're a large organization. We are geographically diverse. We cover all parts of the financial system. And we have some really strong thinkers across the bank that have been working on this for a long time. So it's only natural that we want to get involved, right? To do that, we want to have the dialogue to hear the different voices on critical issues so for example we know for sure the financial system knows for sure that we need to support transition financially we need to help companies customers individuals governments shift and we've got to do it fast the practical ways of getting it into systems as in operational systems that have It's been set up for a very specific purpose, kind of governance, making sure that we're making decisions effectively across the financial system, making sure that we are complying with our regulatory requirements. All of those factors are really important. However, no one person in the financial ecosystem is going to have the right and accurate view of how this climate situation is going to play out. So we need to get together and talk about how to navigate this, both from the risks and opportunities perspective and what truly climate risk and and climate opportunity means, but also create the guardrails of what a credible and high integrity transition plan looks like for the financial sector itself, i.e. How do we talk about what we're doing in a way that is comparable across the industry and meets scientific guidelines of what we need to do to solve the climate problem? And this is where GFANS comes in, right? Because you need to have an umbrella architecture that provides you with a toolkit and safe space to have those difficult conversations that are about changing the way the economy works. And here's why we like working with the IIF so closely as well, right? It's because there are very strong minds, sensible thinkers that have been working on this for a long time that have a very clear focus on delivering the best outcomes for sustainable finance itself. And that's really important, right? It's really important to get those great thinkers together to advocate for what a sensible pathway looks like. Clearly. We're needing to deliver the climate goal fast, but equally, our economic and energy system today isn't going to transform overnight. We really have to work hard to get it on track fast, and we are working on hard to get it on track fast, and we need to discuss the different types of challenges and issues that we all come up against in terms of disclosure and operating model to facilitate engagement being able to meet all the different demands of of different stakeholders and having a a safe space and and framework to be able to do that is critical for us to be able to move fast and that's the most important thing.
0: Well as you say you know having a platform like GFANS to bring together different constituents from across the financial services industry, all the different sectors, sovereign wealth funds and pension funds and banks and investors and insurers, you know, all of these different players in the industry to have this safe space, as you say. But I think, you know, GFANS is also remarkably well-equipped to also interface with the regulators as they think through these issues and with, with policymakers. And, and the, the confluence of policy and regulation here is is also regulation alone just can't do it. You know There are many levers. You're absolutely right, Sonia. We hear a lot of voices
1: around what needs to happen, but there's a reason that these things haven't happened sooner, right? It's because there are barriers, and the barriers may be regulatory, they may be financial, or they may be inaccurate risk assessment. And the building up of capabilities and capacity in terms of assessing climate futures and and having a vision of what the economy will look like in a net zero framework you know that takes a mindset shift and it takes a way of thinking across organisations that people haven't been used to before and we need to have that policy discussion to really get to the root of why things aren't happening faster from a policy perspective because we do need all areas to be firing on all cylinders to beat the climate temperature rise. So the policy engagement piece is is super critical.
0: Absolutely. And it kind of brings me to two other forums that I wanted to mention and and seek your views on. One being the the G20 and its role in global coordination. They have a sustainable finance working group, you know, co-chaired by the US and China, a lot going on there particularly in the area of global standards, but also transition finance. And then, of course, the whole COP process, the Conference of the Parties, the UN system. We had COP26 in Glasgow, COP27 uh, coming up in, in Egypt, 28 in the UAE, and you're going to be right in the thick of it in your work at the Middle East. So what do you make of all these kind of efforts at, at global coordination?
1: Yes, they certainly have a challenge on their hands. And one of the things that I forgot to mention in your previous question is the Sustainable Markets Initiative. So the Financial Services Task Force was a really sort of small group of banks that were trying to get together, not to really try and be prescriptive about what should happen, but really share experiences. And to do that, we, we created a practitioner's guide. What that was really useful for is to think through the policy piece And to really think, right, Okay, what is it that we want to ask the G20 to do in their get-togethers that is going to unblock the system? Having the G20 signal support that climate is a severe issue to address and thinking through how to raise ambition on the nationally determined contributions. These are the plans that every country put forward ahead of the Paris Agreement so that we can get to the consensus below two degrees. That iterative process of the conversation is really valuable because it moves thinking forward. The G20 meetings every year forces a deadline where everybody wants to have something to say and wants to show how the thinking has progressed in the course of the last year or so. That's really useful. It's useful milestones and it's good to hear that signalling power that they have that their countries will be acting on climate on the COP process which again we're now on coming up to COP 27 that's 27 annual conference of the parties where there's been a work program in place from the UN to limit temperature rises some might say you know 27 years that is a heck of a long time why aren't we doing more But equally, having sat in the plenary discussions of a COP, whereby every single country has a chance to bring its voice to the table and talk about what it's doing, I think it's somewhat miraculous that we managed to get to an agreement in Paris in December 2015. And the work that Christiana Figueres did in diplomacy and bringing all the countries to the table to achieve that is something phenomenal in my mind. Moving forward to COP 27. We had Paris, we still need to raise ambition on country action because we're still not aligned to that below 1.5 degree outcome. The role of the UN framework on climate change is really to keep going with those technical work streams that do baseline emissions accounting, to keep building the rulebook of Paris so that there's consistency of country submissions around what countries will do and really bring everybody to the table to remind them how this action will translate into emissions outcomes and how we need to get faster at it. One thing that we've got particular eyes on is the fact that 2023 will be the global stock take. So back in Paris, when countries brought their plans to the table, it was agreed that there would be a progress update in the future to see how well those emissions plans were going, because of course, some of them were an absolute reduction, some of them were business as usual. So they had a bit of untangling to do around comparability issues. That's important for the UAE. First stop in Egypt, the importance is focused on financing for resilience. So the adaptation piece that of course, Egypt as representing Africa has a lot of challenges around adaptation, but also scaling up power systems to provide access to power and respond to the other sustainable development goals. Finance is still going to be front and centre in Egypt. And what I think we would like to see more of is tangible examples of success. So where are financing vehicles really worked to either Accelerate a closure of a fossil fuel facility and make that shift to renewable power in a way that is just and equitable in an emerging market. We want to showcase strategic kind of collaboration between oil and gas and industry to look at how to collaborate on decarbonisation. And actually, the Egyptian petroleum industry has signed a memorandum of understanding between ourselves as finance partners, but also some other industrials, Baker Hughes, Bextel, the Egyptian petroleum companies, to look specifically at how to decarbonize the sector. And so this type of innovation and thinking and collaboration is really the way that we're going to create blueprints for what can be lifted and translated into other markets. Doing that will help us going forward.
0: That's so interesting. And I, I think, you know, COP itself, the, the UN process has evolved over the years. And one thing we certainly saw a lot more of in Glasgow was private sector attendance and private sector voice, including the private financial sector, which of course we're getting at here. Looking at COP 27, COP 28 and going forward, it's an interesting confluence of the role of the private sector in mobilizing the kind of capital we need for the transition and for climate finance and emerging markets. The evolving of regulation and policy, you know, bringing that, that element into it, but also the, the opportunity side. You know, as you just mentioned, there are huge opportunities in financing the transition. And that brings me to another question I had for you, which is around the role of markets, you know, bond markets, equity markets, carbon markets. We need to have deep, liquid capital markets for ESG products and instruments in order to facilitate all of this. No, how do you see it going? We certainly do need
1: deep and liquid markets, and we certainly need transparency that capital is moving in the direction that companies and financial institutions have pledged that it will do. So this transparency piece is critical. Um, Bond and equity markets can really help on the mobilisation piece, and the growth of the green bond market, the sustainability-linked bond markets have been critical for companies and sovereigns to show their credibility of translating words into action so they absolutely are part of the solution one of the things that this highlights is slightly different levers that are available for change across the system so if you're a shareholder you obviously have your lever of engagement as ownership of that company And you're going to be able to address that each year through the AGM. You're going to be able to address that through investor roadshows. And you're going to be able to have a topic that you really want to get behind for that company to act on. And and climate clearly is is a big issue. If you're a bank and you're on the kind of lending side or the issuance side, your lever is slightly different because you can address the cost of capital that you're willing to provide. And therefore, you've got this economic lever that will eventually change the drivers of the underlying issuance market and the loan book. So whilst the financial system is addressing the same topic, there are slightly different ways in which it can use its influence depending on where it sits in the, the financial system system, the entire chain of activity.
0: So in other words, it's complicated. So
1: Sonia, it is quite complicated, but we can break it down into really simple steps, which is number one, is there a climate plan? Number two, tell us what the climate plan is. And number three, going forward, does the climate plan look credible, i.e. is it aligned with scientific outcomes? And those three steps of the conversation are really how we learn more about what governments, companies and individuals are doing, and whether or not we're on track to achieve our goal.
0: That really does encapsulate what investors need to know and the conversations that banks and other financial firms are having with their clients all over the world as we speak. Now, you have been really generous with your time today, but I did want to come back to one question that comes up again and again in any conversation in recent weeks. And You know, given the challenges presented by the Russia-Ukraine conflict and the potential implications for markets, including, you know, much higher oil and, and energy prices, you know, which has a lot of ripple effects, how do you see this evolving in the context of the green agenda? Clearly, it emphasizes the case for transition, for getting away from reliance on fossil fuels. There's so many good reasons to do this. And energy independence is just one of them. But at the same time, it's also a big distraction for global policymakers and high oil prices in and of themselves can siphon off resources, for example, from vulnerable emerging markets that need to meet their sustainable development goals. So how do you see all this playing out? Well, for sure, it's a very
1: heartbreaking situation that is playing out around us right now. And in Houston, clearly, the conversation which was supposed to be fully centred on climate transition and energy futures really had energy security in it as well. So the real takeaways from the discussion were of the importance of the sector as a whole for solving climate. So every single CEO talked about Engineering expertise, the talent pool, shifting the existing infrastructure to be used as a solution for climate change, the role of the sectors driving transition in an orderly fashion. But they also acknowledge that there's a lot of work to do in terms of educating how they fit in and how they facilitate those solutions and how that can be done. Clearly, for many, it's just not happening fast enough. And so the terrible events that are playing out are here with us and the leaders of those companies and the leaders in Europe and the US and everywhere have to respond to what's happening now. But equally, there are a mass of other people that continue to work on energy transition, whether that's in a ministry, in local government, in a financial institution, in the asset management industry, and they don't suddenly stop working. And they're not suddenly shifted into a different field in most cases. So it needs to happen faster. We know that. The innovative breakthroughs that can come are still underway. Work on hydrogen and how to embed hydrogen as a cleaner solution. The likes of the philanthropists and different activities that are coming to the fore supporting areas like direct air capture natural capital solutions and getting scale of funding into those topics is really crucial. And in fact, HSBC just put a hundred million of capital into the, the Gates Breakthrough Foundation initiative. And so yes, nobody can deny that there have been issues to think about, but equally nobody can deny that the climate problem is is going away. And so that's a clear topic of conversation. The one thing that I would say though is Last week revealed, to my surprise, that the oil and gas sector and power companies want to be much more on the front foot of telling their story and want to be on the front foot of demonstrating how they can play a a bigger role in making that shift. For HSBC and for all financial institutions, the starting point is engagement to finance change. Right? Because without funding, there won't be change. There will just be bankruptcy. So, is that what we really want? I'm thinking that we want prosperous societies that are limiting temperature rises and that make space for everybody and where everyone has a role. And to deliver that outcome, we need to try and accelerate the solutions.
0: I think it's a really, really thoughtful answer to a difficult question. How is all of this going to play out going forward? I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's going to be the decade of transition finance. Zoe, thank you so much for being with us today. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Sonia, for inviting me. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of All About the Green with Zoe Knight, who's Global Head of the Center of Sustainable Finance for HSBC. We appreciate your time today. And for more episodes of All About the Green, go ahead and find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play and Spotify. Thank you so much.